Welcome to Museum Chat Live, a podcast exploring all things museums and how museums are evolving to meet the needs of our communities. I am one of your hosts, Sarah Nixon, public programmer at the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Centre, located in St. Catharines, Ontario, Canada. And I'm Abby Stansfield, also a public programmer at the St. Catharines Museum and your other Museum Chat Live co-host. We are really excited to bring you the first episode of a brand new season in a brand new year. Today we will explore how stories that are not based in historical evidence make their way into the collective historical narratives, why fiction sometimes spurs from historical fact, and how folklore, myths, and legends can be addressed and interpreted to museum audiences. Given that it will be Black History Month at the time of this episode's release, we'll apply these considerations to the folklore surrounding the Underground Railroad, where St. Catharines played a prominent role, and how the St. Catharines Museum is working to address fact versus fiction in interpreting broader Black history narratives through our exhibitions and programming. Historical facts are names, dates, locations, and any concrete evidence found in historical sources from a certain person, place, or event of the past. History is the narrative that connects these facts together. Historian Chris Lorenz takes this idea further in his chapter, Drawing the Line, Scientific History Between Myth-Making and Myth-Breaking, in the 2008 anthology Narrating the Nation, Representations in History, Media, and the Arts. Here, Lorenz suggests that in order to become a history, facts must be strung together into a pattern that is at once understandable, credible, and meaningful to its audience. Meaningful in the sense that history draws on the beliefs, values, and common knowledge collectively shared by the audience. Meaningful in the sense that history is told as stories we can follow along with, remember, and retell others. So while historical fact exists, historical truth does not. We construct our understanding of the past by interpreting facts as we know them and communicating our interpretations of these facts to others. History is, is not objective, nor is it ever finished or complete. History is in a state of constant flux, changing over time as historians find new historical sources or uncover new historical facts that reveal a new perspective and inevitably change the narrative. History is a reflection of a society's values, beliefs, and common ways of thinking, but it does not seek to explain what of society cannot be explained. This, rather, is what spurs folklore, legend, and myth. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines folklore as the traditional customs, tales, sayings, dances, or art forms preserved among a people. A branch of knowledge that deals with folklore and an often unsupported notion, story, or saying that is widely circulated. A legend is defined as a story from the past that is believed by many people but cannot be proved to be true. Myth, on the other hand, has several entries in the Merriam-Webster, but most pertinent to this podcast episode is the first definition. A usually traditional story of ostensibly historical events that serves to unfold part of the worldview of a people 
or explain a practice, belief, or natural phenomenon. What sets myths, folklore, and legends apart from history is this. Stories are created not to string a series of historical facts together into a palpable narrative, but to provide a particular lesson, explain the unexplainable, or establish an origin story for a collective of people, whether a family, a community, or even a whole culture or society. Though often grounded in some kind of historical fact, the narrative often draws on emotion and the sensational, which makes the story memorable and thus more easily repeated. Like a game of telephone, the more these stories are told over time and are passed down through generations, details shift and evolve, but the core messages remain steadfast. Myths, legends, and folklore tell us something about larger societal and cultural origins, beliefs, and values, and common practices and traditions. They stick in our collective consciousness for what they tell us about the worldviews and belief systems of a people. History also helps us understand these worldviews and belief systems. But the narrative comes from historical evidence. In museums, historical facts are grounded in the objects, archival material, and oral histories we collect. We interpret these by connecting meaningful patterns or historical narratives, which are shared through museum exhibits, public programming, and how we share our collections. The way museums and other historical institutions interpret history is also shaped by broader conversations and issues going on in our communities and wider culture and society. At a time where Truth and Reconciliation Commission report and Black Lives Matter protests have begun to replace traditional history narratives at Center Sage. It's become clear that there are multiple historical truths and approaches to the creation of history. Museums have an opportunity to ask new questions and give voice to new perspectives and experiences previously silenced and erased in such traditional histories. Again, this is why our understanding of history will always be in flux an ongoing conversation that continues to expand as new voices are heard and new evidence uncovered. Many museums interpret stories from our past in a way that encourages audiences to reflect, contemplate, question, form opinions, and ultimately expand their perspective so that the conversation can go even further. This is especially important when the history a museum is interpreting has spurred its own folklore, legend, or myth over time. Such closely held traditional stories shape the public's expectations and perceptions of certain histories even before they encounter them at a museum. As a community museum, the St. Catharines Museum interprets the history of the city of St. Catharines and the Welland Canal in St. Catharines. Part of our approach is to gather a broad sense of the preconceived histories that our visitors might already have encountered before they visit us, so that we can use these tools to connect with visitors on their level, but then also engage them with new stories and perspectives of that history. Visitors to our museum already have an idea of the Welland Canal before they walk onto the viewing platform. So it's about how we can make their visit a more meaningful experience by introducing new stories, perspectives, and things to think about. 
It's a balancing act on how we address visitors' expectations of a particular history and the historical narrative we present based on the objects, oral history interviews, archival material, images, and other historical sources that are available to us. When people hear about St. Catherine's Black history, they often come to expect the story of Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad. That the narrative is so deeply tied to the Underground Railroad can be problematic as it tends to overshadow the history of our city's Black community after the American Civil War and into the 20th century. But even more challenging for historians is that the Underground Railroad narrative so many of us are familiar with is brimming with romanticized folklore. This in turn can overshadow the reality of the hardships freedom seekers encountered on their journey and into their settlement of St. Catharines. People have come to expect that myth. The Underground Railroad legend is incredibly vivid in our collective imagination. But before we interrogate the myth, let's get to know it a bit better. Sarah, can you help us paint a picture of the Underground Railroad story that has sparked so many of our imaginations? Yes, absolutely. I think people familiar with the story share a similar imagining of the Underground Railroad, a dangerous journey of refugee slaves escaping bondage in the southern United States with the brave guidance of conductors and access to safe hiding places and depots. Freedom seekers would have made their way on the metaphorical tracks of the Underground Railroad to the final terminuses of freedom, hope, and a new life in the northern U.S. and in Canada. Humans are storytellers, and this all has the elements of what we love in a good story. We always like a story with a clear-cut hero and villain. The conductors are often written as the heroes, white abolitionists, but sometimes free black folks who use the attics and cellars of their homes, barns, or secret tunnels as depots for the scared and desperate slaves that they were morally committed to helping. The villain in the Underground Railroad story is of course the southern planter or slave owner and their greedy deceitful accomplices bounty hunters who schemed to catch slaves for monetary rewards we also like a story with adventure and excitement and so we're drawn to the premise of slaves and abolitionists risking their lives and facing unimaginable danger venturing across slave states undercover or in the dead of night outrunning or hiding from bounty hunters and taking whatever means necessary to cross the very real obstacles to freedom. Above all else, we all like a story with a happy ending, and the story of the Underground Railroad inevitably always ends with freedom seekers crossing into Canada, the promised land, and settling into a free, prosperous life. So are you telling me this action-packed story isn't the history? Well, like any good story, especially one that's been told over and over again, over many generations, the story of the Underground Railroad has become exaggerated over time. And with exaggeration, eventually, comes the creation of folklore, legend, and myth. If we were to return to the definitions of folklore, legend, and myth that we discussed earlier in this episode, we know that such stories also work to teach us something about societal and cultural origins, beliefs, and value systems, as well as common practices and traditions. 
These definitions help us understand how underground railroad myths are used in Canada to di differentiate its collective history from that of the United States. The romanticized story distinguishes Canada as the promised land, where freedom seekers were welcomed with safety and security from the United States, a slave-owning country riddled with racial prejudice where freedom seekers were escaping from. It's an us versus them story. And as a collective, Canadians continue to hold on to this version of history as it helps to guide the notions of what it means to be Canadian today, reinforcing concepts like multiculturalism or the charters of rights and freedoms, for example. However, the history is much more nuanced. In fact, if we give the myths of the Underground Railroad a bit more scrutiny, we can shift our attention from the classic storytelling tropes that have romanticized our understanding of the Underground Railroad and instead center the narrative on the courage and fortitude of the black men and women who made the escape and put their lives in danger as they sought freedom. You're absolutely right, Sarah. It's really important to recenter the story on freedom seekers, those who actually escaped slavery and made the journey to freedom, which was long and hard, and not everybody had that opportunity. So why has the story become so romanticized then when we know how difficult it was for them? Where did these myths come from? For sure, much of contemporary misunderstanding and myth about the Underground Railroad originated in a 1898 study published by historian professor Wilbert H. Siebert titled The Underground Railroad from Slavery to Freedom. So throughout the 1880s and 1890s, uh, some 30 years after the peak of the Underground Railroad and the American Civil War, Siebert collected an impressively vast array of material regarding the Underground Railroad. He wrote letters of inquiry to aged abolitionists and their descendants, asking them to complete a questionnaire. He interviewed former freedom seekers and nearly everyone still living who had some sort of memory related to the network. It's these reminiscences that formed the source material for his widely published study. While we must acknowledge Siebert's extensive and very diligent work, we must also acknowledge that he was collecting Reminiscences. These were recalled to Siebert decades after the Underground Railroad activity ended. And as we've been saying, like all good stories told time and time again, what was shared was more like family lore. Now think about a story you were told as a child, Abby. Maybe your parents or grandparents, they, they told you something about what happened when they were children. These details are inevitably left out or embellished due to memory or, or otherwise. And this is what was happening with Siebert's re uh, recollections that were being given to him. Details are inevitably left out. And furthermore, it was only after the Civil War ended and slavery abolished that the anti-slavery cause earned respectability in American society. So aging abolitionists really became eager to stake their claim on the right side of history. The recollections submitted to Siebert or other local historians emphasize their heroism and loyalty, telling thrilling tales that drew more on propaganda at the time rather than being grounded in lived experiences. These tales of adventure were already told to their children, relatives, and neighbors, so they would, in turn and out of loyalty, recount these stories to their descendants 
and on and on. These were the tales that made it into local and county history publications, further embedding the legend into popular consciousness. Now, thankfully, Siebert did sift past the most fanciful stories he received, but still, in what he did publish, placed far too much emphasis on the work of self-described white conductors managing these interconnected stations and routes across the U.S. Historians like Larry Guerra and David Blight, who have studied his source material, actually argue that Siebert selected the accounts that feed into this romanticized narrative of the Underground Railroad and chose not to include accounts that didn't make any mention of the network or outrightly denying knowledge of it. And in doing so, Siebert's 1898 publication fashioned a popular narrative of primarily white conductors helping nameless black folks find freedom that over time embedded itself into the popular consciousness of the United States and inevitably spreading into Canada. Despite Siebert's selective history, his work still powerfully influences both scholarly and popular conceptions of the Underground Railroad today. It is so fascinating to me to consider how a myth gets perpetuated, especially in today's culture, and how to trace the point at which the myth really becomes history for a lot of people. Who benefits from such myth-making, do you think? That's such a good question, Abby. When it really comes to the history of black refugees escaping enslavement and seeking safety and freedom in the northern U.S. or in Canada, the romanticized narratives is especially appealing to communities who have rallied around their local underground railroad connections as points of community pride or even to increase tourism in the 20th and 21st centuries. So the legend is weaved into local history books, on walking tours, tourist attractions, and even in museums. The story becomes so established as a pillar of community identity that it becomes incredibly challenging to present an alternate historical narrative that calls into question largely held assumptions. That's something I can really understand having worked in museums for such a long time about how difficult it is to approach the alternative history given new sources and facts that have come out. The Underground Railroad narrative that we are also familiar with is brimming with railroad metaphors and code words. Conductors, which meant guides, usually white but sometimes black abolitionists. A station, which was a community supporting the anti-slavery cause. Depots, which were the safe houses or hiding places. Uh, tracks, which equaled route. Cargo, which meant slaves. Terminus, uh, which meant the north originally the northern United States, or eventually uh, included Canada. Given the universal perceptions of the myth, can you share with the listeners our approach to interpreting the Underground Railroad history here at the St. Catharines Museum? Because this is something that really intrigued me when I started here. Oh, absolutely. Yes, Abby. I know you and I have talked about this a lot since you coming on the team. And you know, as well as I and anyone working in museums, that it's definitely tricky when interpreting underground railroad history to both adults and school children, we draw on railroad metaphors because of their universal perceptions. 
Such symbolism and imagery are effective tools to describe really complicated and layered histories with many historical players and moving pieces. The history we share should use a vehicle that is approachable and relatable. It's important that our audiences can connect to the history we share. That's how history can make a meaningful impact. However, we must also balance hooking our audience with the story and delving into the complexities and nuances of the historical topic. Furthermore, we must try to establish at the onset of whatever tour or program we're delivering with what the Underground Railroad really is, which does involve a bit of myth busting. Over the decades, we know that myths have spurred around the notion that operatives aiding freedom seekers communicated using railroad terminology like what you listed above um, as these code words uh, to be used when transiting refugees to freedom. The fact is, however, that the real operation of the Underground Railroad was not the highly organized system of conductors, tunnels, codes, and clearly defined tracks or stations as the popular lore has really led us to believe. It was not a nationwide scheme or conspiracy. Rather, the Underground Railroad was a series of localized networks operated by a few abolitionists who sometimes operated together and sometimes not, using a vast range of methods and resources available to aid slaves escaping bondage. Some who helped were more motivated by personal gain rather than a moral compass, attempting to even make money off of freedom seekers in desperate situations. Even truer still, and most important of all, many slaves who did escape fled on their own, without guidance, without resources, as they were quite wary to trust others for fear of being caught, and instead relying on their own fortitude and grit. It's certainly a balancing act between drawing on popular parts of these uh, stories and these conceptions of history to help facilitate the learning uh, and understanding and engaging uh, these people who are coming to you to learn more, but also debunking the more problematic parts of those conceptions at the same time. Over the last several months, the museum's programming team, which is to say you and I, <laughs> have been developing a new black history program in an attempt to reimagine how we interpret the Underground Railroad history. Sarah, do you want to share a bit of uh, this exciting new programming we've got available? Oh my gosh, absolutely. We are really excited about it, and Abby and I, this is one of the first programs that we worked on together as a team, so it's really exciting to share it. Uh, we've called it On the Liberty Line, Early Black History in St. Catharines, and this focuses on the first-hand experiences of freedom seekers who settled in St. Catharines during the era of the Underground Railroad. By tracing the lives of actual black people who lived and worked and found community in the city through city directories, census records, newspapers, letters, and other historical sources from this period, we can better understand their actual experiences here, which sometimes don't fit the romanticized version of the story that we're so used to telling. Newly acquired sources, the rereading of others, and identifying where sources don't exist at all tell us that the black community in St. Catharines have often faced racism, discrimination, and prejudice, both subtle and overt, throughout our past when it comes to employment, housing, education, and membership in community spaces. 
these realities are integral to our understanding of black history. And if they don't fit within the romanticized versions we're so familiar with, that idea of the promised land and everyone coming to St. Catharines to be happy and, and free and successful and all of that good ooey gooey stuff, then really even better as an educational institution, but also as a community museum with a mandate to share the diverse stories and experiences of all those who've called St. Catherine's home throughout our past, we have a responsibility to uncover and lift up stories centered on black experience and black voices. To do this, we don't necessarily have to bash and destroy the romanticized narratives of the Underground Railroad entirely, but we do need to present these stories in a way that offer reflection and provoke thought. Absolutely, and it becomes more exciting the more you dig into these lives because they were so, they found such difficulty just doing normal everyday things that you begin rooting for them. And when you see them coming up in the sources, the directories or the senses, we really get excited because they're making headway. You're following them through their new lives and freedom and they're persevering, which makes, as an in interpreter of history, it's so much more exciting because you can see where the community uh, came from and how it developed over time. Oh, exactly. Like, I think. Even in, as, you know, someone who grew up in Niagara, you know, when I grew up, I heard this fa like fanciful story of the Underground Railroad as like this broad story that didn't have any real faces and names attached to it other than Harriet Tubman and these large players. But doing this research with you on the Liberty Line, we've been able to trace the lives of freedom seekers like George Ross and other business owners and school teachers and people who lived in the black neighborhood in St. Catharines trace their lives, see when they were, you know, reconnected with family and when they got a new job and when they, you know, really stood up for their for their rights in certain situations. Like you say, Abby, you really start to root for these people as as community members and as a reflection of St. Catharines community as a whole and the history we share here. Yeah, it's been amazing to be able to work on that program and exploring the lives of these people that were maybe unnamed in that narrative prior to this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that way that you put that. Uh, for anyone interested in the On the Liberty Line program, for Black History Month we've actually premiered it as a virtual presentation that uh, anyone, any member of the public can check out if you head to um, our Facebook page or even our YouTube page a little bit later on uh, in the month, you'll be able to, to view a virtual presentation, a virtual version of this program for yourself. So if everybody listening is excited like I am and wants to uh, participate, uh, we'll link the On the Liberty Line presentation in the show notes. So be sure to check it out. The myths Folklores and legends play an important role in popular consensus and in sharing broader lessons about people's cultural values, beliefs, traditions, and worldviews. Such stories can be intrinsic to identity and sense of belonging. 
they serve a particular purpose and it is not fair to dismiss them entirely. However, it is worthwhile to take a closer look at myths and folklore to consider what their purposes are and who they really serve. In doing so, new perspectives and questions inevitably arise, which makes history fun and participatory rather than static. We've only lightly unpacked the myths surrounding the Underground Railroad history today, but we did so to suggest how centering Black experience in telling this narrative complicates the neatly wrapped package that has been so deeply embedded in our popular consciousness. As museums, we must embrace the messy, the complicated, layered histories that emerge when the narrative is open to new voices, perspectives, and experiences. That's it for this episode of Museum Chat Live. Be sure to tune in next month as we explore the ways social media is democratizing the way we share history, which will be a lot of fun to explore. A big, big thank you to our listeners. We would love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Connect with us on social media. You can find us on Facebook at St. Catherine's Museum and at STC Museum on Twitter and Instagram. You can also leave your comments on our blog, stcatherinesmuseumblog.com. Be sure to check out all of our social media pages, our website for all of our Black History Month content, including links to view our virtual presentation of On the Liberty Line, Early Black History in St. Catharines. If you could help us spread the word about Museum Chat Live, we'd love, love it. We'd also love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review on your podcast listening platform. It really makes a difference. Make sure to also subscribe to Museum's other podcasts, One Hour in the Past, on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Mellon Canal Centre and the City of St. Catharines. Hey.